Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Dumpster Fire Cinema, we talk about movies we love. My name is Aaron, and I'm joined here by... Jordan. So how do you want to start this thing off? Why don't you start it? Um, okay. Start it off with, uh, let's get this Dumpster Fire started. There you go. Man. <laughs> cool. Cool. Um, we're going to be talking about The Fifth Element, which I was looking it up today, and it's, what, like 20... 20 years old. That's 20 years old this year, I think. Wow, it is 20 years old. I know. I know. (laughs) That's crazy. Oh, my God. It's funny because, like, I think in 1997, I wasn't old enough to watch it. That's for sure. I didn't see it until I was probably a freshman in high school, maybe a little bit younger. It was old news by that point. I probably saw it when I was 19. Oh, okay. That's a guess. Okay. So, not too long after it came out. Uh, matter of fact, I remember seeing commercials for it. I thought, wow, that looks really stupid. <laughs> and I didn't think about it. Not even one time until I caught it on TV, I think. Yeah, I never saw I never saw anything about it. And then I think like my sister rented it from Blockbuster of all Ooh. places. And we ended up watching it. And I was like, what is this magnificence? This is I mean, it's probably one of my top favorite movies. I mean, I can watch this movie anytime. Yeah, I, I've anytime. probably watched it 50 times. Because I will say this right now. This is my favorite film. That's why we're doing it. It was my top pick because this is legit my favorite film. I know there's better films, but this one's my favorite. Yeah, and it's super quotable. And it's just, I mean, there's so many wonderful, campy, just nonsense that I you know we could probably talk about forever and ever the one thing though that always makes me laugh is that they have Luke Perry in the very first credit was this Luke Perry's last role (laughs) I don't it might have been well the funny because because he's only in the very first like 15 minutes and I don't know if it's because of how popular he was back in the late 90s and they were like oh we have to put Luke Perry in the credits, even though no, he wasn't? No. Luke Perry's he was over with by this point. <laughs> this was like a wild card cameo. That's no, so nobody weird. expected it. Well, and to have him in the main credits because like, you know, you'll have surprise cameos in movies now and they don't even put them in the main credits. Yeah. You just see them and you're like, Oh my gosh, it's so and so. 
Yeah, it does seem a little weird that he got he got high billing for this when he really isn't even in the film and he wasn't famous he's, anymore at the time. He's kind of a whiny bitch. Like he's he's just like, oh my god, you killed the professor, ah! and then he like freaks out with the gun. Oh, and and a, like... Yeah, and of course, like like in Beverly Hills 90210, Luke Perry fucks it all up. <laughs> He makes everything go tits up because I guess he tries to shoot. He shoots the uh, the alien, the uh, what do they call those things? The Mondachi ones. Uh, I See, every time they said it in the movie, it was always so mumbly. Like, uh, like Ian Holmes says it like once or twice and he says it so quick. The other funny thing is forever, I guess, watching this as a as a young person, I thought the professor was saying, are you chairman? And it just confused me for a very long time and then i watched it with the subtitles and he says are you german oh yeah which again it took me a minute to realize it's, it's, it's 1914 it's 1914 yeah, world war one is happening there's like all sorts of um technological advances happening at that time and so for him to assume that these are german soldiers in these big ass metal whatever because of their technology yeah right. like it it just makes me way more sense than are you chairman which i I don't even know where that came from. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's kind of funny, too. You know, uh, I, I want to know, and they don't explain this in the movie. I'm going to skip forward a little bit to uh, 2257 when um, Ian Holm, he's a priest, and he's he's the carrier of this lore. He knows about the, the Monachuans, but so does the president. President Tiny fucking Lister. I know. He's so funny to me because... He is great. He does... Okay, I, and I might get a lot of, like, hatred for this, but he does such a shit job. What? Yes, I think he's terrible. Even watching as an adult and, like, watching other movies that he's been in, like, it, I don't know, it's weird. And you know how sometimes you'll watch a movie with an actor that's really not that great, and you see him along somebody, alongside somebody who is really fantastic, and you can clearly see the difference? Yeah. Like, that's kind of how I feel about him in this movie. Like, I mean... Obviously, he's kind of funny, and he's this big hulking dude that any moment I wanted to be like, "That's my bike." That's my bike. What you got on my phony. <laughs> I feel the opposite way for the exact same reasons. I think that he that he was good in this movie. It was kind of cool to see him kind of chilled out and calm, dignified. Right. I felt the same way about Brian James, who plays General Monroe. He was in um, uh, Blade Runner. He, uh -huh. he was like that first replicant. Uh, I think I think his name was um, Leon Kowalski. And, and you're he, right. Oh my gosh, I didn't even like place that until just now. Yeah, that's it. Oh and, man. And just to see him in this movie, like in the scene where, and I'm gonna jump ahead a little bit again, but in the scene where Corbin, his mom calls and he answers the phone, and she's like, "You want a trip, Corbin?" And then. Leon Kowalski shows up, or not Leon Kowalski, but but General Monroe yeah. shows up with the uh, with the lady with the Princess Leia sticky bun, yes, in her, which is great. He kind of has this uh, this friendship with uh, with Corbin. Mm -hmm. uh, they go way back because they're both military guys. But he's like real calm, and it just seems so weird to see him being that way, or just people in that situation being that way. Well, I wanted to kind of talk about um, Luc Besson. We didn't look up to see how to pronounce his name. So if I totally dragged that through the mud, I'm really sorry. We don't apologize. <laughs> um, Luc Besson, um, if you didn't know, he also directed Leon the Professional. Yes. 
um, which I didn't actually see until a couple years ago. And I was really ashamed of myself. I was like, man, this is such a good movie. How did I miss this? Um, he also directed Lucy with um, Scarlett Johansson, which was actually, it's an interesting movie. It's, I liked Lucy. It's a, it's a mind trip. Like you, mm-hmm. you kind of have to just stay put because at first you're like, I don't know how I feel, but you got to keep going with it. It was a fantastic action film. It, it was stupid in the end. The ending was fucking dumb. I was I, almost the dumbest, but it was a good movie. It was a good ride. And Scarlett Johansson is fantastic. And most recently, he did the Valerian movie, which I have not seen. I haven't seen it either. It's one of those things where I saw the previews and I thought, ooh, that looks interesting, but not interesting enough to where I want to pay money to go see it. For me, I was like, oh, wow, new movie from Luc Besson. Is this this generation's fifth element? And come to find out, I don't think it was. The reviews are bad. Um, and I have, like I said, I haven't seen it. But yeah. I feel like if it were, then I would, then I, that message would have been conveyed to me by now. Well, the, the media and the geek crowd as a whole thought it was not a good movie. Which that speaks volumes to me. Because if the geek crowd goes, oh, let's not... I don't really think you should watch this movie. I'm going to go, okay, if somebody pulls it out at a party, I'll probably sit down to watch five minutes of it, but I'm not, I'm not going to invest money in it, which kind of makes me sad because I'd hate, I hate to say it, but I mean, maybe Luke Besson hit his, hit his mark with Fifth Element and Lucy. I mean, I don't know though. Maybe, maybe it was just a, a case of him flying too close to the sun with Valerian and then it just, you know, maybe his next one won't be so bad. I don't know. I would say that Lucy isn't really in the same league as Fifth Element. Oh, so no. So let me let me preface no. that let me preface this with that. Fifth Element was uh what they call lightning in a bottle. Yeah. It was a perfect storm uh of just everything kind of went right. Uh if one thing about this movie was different it wouldn't be as good if bruce willis said no if chris tucker said no Mm -hmm. you know uh if the writing was a little bit shittier yeah if uh if what's his name mark robert mark Kamen hadn't been a co-writer on this it might have been a totally different movie um i just think that that this was like uh all the the stars and planets aligning in just the right way i i imagine that this was one of those things where bruce willis and chris tucker and probably Tiny Lister and Gary Oldman were on vacation or something. <laughs> you know, they were they were vacationing in France and somebody, you know, approached him and said, let's make a movie. I don't know if that's what happened or not. Well, funny story. I was actually looking up interesting facts about the casting and Bruce Willis, because they had originally thought they really wanted Mel Gibson. What? Can you imagine this movie with Mel Gibson? I can't. I can't. It wouldn't be as good. I I don't think so either. But they decided to go with Bruce Willis, who at the time was, he was already like action star Bruce Willis by this point. And so he, he decided or he agreed to take a lower pay cut for this movie. I read an interview where he said, you know, he sometimes will do scripts because they're fun. And so that's why he chose it. And he, it paid off in the end because, I mean, this movie made its money back like three times over it made uh it, it had a budget of 90 million and it grossed 264 million box yeah. office yeah that's so, that's really good that's a very big success it's the most expensive european film at the time that it was made yeah and it's also it was also the most uh successful grossing french film uh 
until 2011's uh, the in the Intouchables, which I haven't seen. But it up until like then, a porno. I know it kind of does, it? Uh, but up until then, it was the most successful grossing French film ever. Yeah, well, and the other thing is, is that for uh, for Chris Tucker's Ruby Rod, they originally wanted Prince. And Prince turned it down because he said that the clothes were too effeminate. Isn't that ironic? The, that dude ain't never shopped in the men's section <laughs> in his life. Chris Tucker said it was a mixture of Michael Jackson and Prince like put together. And that's where he yeah. kind of drew his inspiration. But I, that's funny, though, like because you were saying how all the elements came together perfectly. I can't imagine anyone else in any of these roles. No. Like, it's just it's too hard for me to go, oh, I could definitely see. No, like, it's just way too perfect with the casting yeah and and chris tucker i mean just like tiny lister the the only thing that he was really notable for before this was friday and yeah. he was good in that but i never thought he would be sci-fi material i never thought he would be able to do a role like like ruby rod right ruby rod is one of the most memorable characters in sci-fi history for sure oh and maybe yes. just ever i mean who who could forget ruby rod fantastic i mean i and he was chris tuckering it you know mm -hmm. he was doing chris tucker uh i imagine that uh luke Basson didn't intend for ruby rod to turn out how it did but it i think that once he saw chris tucker's performance he was like fuck yes this is the guy if there is a year that you go to a Comic-Con and there's not somebody cosplaying Ruby Rod, it is a sad year indeed. Because everybody wants to do Lilu. I mean, they. Yeah. I mean, you'll see like five to ten Lilus running around. Mm -hmm. But um, I think the two years in a row that I went to Comic-Con in Dallas, I saw Ruby Rod. At least one. And it was just so cool to me to see this just pop culture icon that, you know, at, at glance you might be like, who is that? But then you see like the – like you know at towards the end of the movie where he had like the rose jumpsuit and the and the freaking um the his, hair it's like a reverse beehive yeah it's like a front <laughs> facing beehive yeah. yeah it's great yeah would you listen to ruby rod's radio show there's a part like a big part of me i guess the fan in me that goes oh of course i would but in if i didn't know who he was and like his show was coming on and it's batshit like he is just batshit and it's hard for me to go 100% say I would listen to his show because it would probably drive me a little bit crazy. And, you know, the thing about it is, is Ruby Rod doesn't really do like interviews or anything that we see. He just talks. Yeah. So and, and we don't see him play music either. So, I mean, like, what the fuck kind of radio station is this that Ruby Rod's on? They're broadcasting live. Are they just broadcasting Ruby Rod all day and all night? Well, and they he said something about... Um, Whenever they're on the, the ship and they're about to go to Flossed in Paradise, he talks about 50 billion ears. Right. So the whole world, at least the most populated areas, are listening to this segment of his radio show. Yeah. So, I, I mean, it's it's got to be he's got to just be talking randomness all the time is this a show is this like a one-hour show that, that, you, that we don't know it's never <laughs> explained for some reason in this universe ruby rod is like the shit and apparently he's like the sexiest thing that the future has to offer right all these girls are just like going nuts ruby rod's a big deal in this world uh, apparently and he's a great plot device 
He is. He he moves the story forward. He's great. And they could have they could have killed him off so quickly. Towards the end of the movie, they could have just been like, "Oh, Ruby Rod's dead." But no, they kept him through the whole last half of the movie. He's the mascot for this movie. He is. Yeah. He is. The other thing that I wanted to talk about was um, the people who just have bit parts, like the guy with the hat, and he's just like, give me the cash. Oh, God, I love that guy. Give me the cash. That that is like, when I first watched this movie and I saw that scene, that was when I knew that this movie was something special. Who is that guy? So so basically, uh, Corbin Dallas looks out of his peephole, and he sees a shot of the hallway, and he opens the door, and it's this guy, and he's wearing a hat, with a photo of the hallway <laughs> and he's got this big fucking gun and of course Corbin Dallas, you know, smooth talked his way out of the whole thing. And yeah. and then the guy does this awkward little dance to to end the scene and it's just I don't need it. It's I don't need it. Yeah. And it's just so awkward. It's just the weirdest thing. Well, I don't I just, I just love that Bruce Willis kind of laughs and i can't tell him that's a lovely hat yeah like he's just like he he composes himself and he's just like that's a nice hat he's like thanks you know i don't think he acted that i think that was his genuine reaction i i do i wonder if they told him that was gonna well obviously maybe they didn't i don't know (laughs) well fun fact um about not telling the cast stuff they did not show the girl the woman who plays Plava Laguna, the diva. Mm-hmm. the diva. They didn't show her in her costume until she comes out on stage to sing. Really? Yeah. So all the reactions you see from everybody is genuine. Huh. So, which, fun fact number two, that was actually Luc Besson's wife at the time, which they actually, um, he left her for Mila Jovovich. Yeah. And then they got married and then they promptly they got, got divorced. divorced two years later. <laughs> but no, going back to the extras, the guys in the nucleo lab um the the people on the ship ruby rods entourage like all of the people aziz uh, aziz lights yeah. like that poor kid like he, he probably didn't even get a dime but everybody i mean you have the main characters which drive the movie but then you've got these background people one of which is finger who you never see and for the longest time i thought was um Vin Diesel, all of these extras add flavor. They add spice and they make the world what it is because honestly, without all of these other people, I don't really know, you know. I mean, it would still be a good movie. It's good for world building, but Finger was a good character. You never see him, but you know, he he drove the plot and he did it without it looking too obvious. Yeah. yeah. He looks like shit in that picture. <laughs> Which we never see. Yeah, that's it always true. bugs the shit out of me. I'm always like, what the, What does he who look is, like? Who are you? Yeah. I need to know. And and Brian James uh, as General Monroe and the, the Sticky Bun girl. Yeah. I mean, that's just such a tiny touch that makes it so much better. Yeah. It just adds a little bit more and more to it. There And the... Don't forget about the guy, uh, the Matthew Broderick guy. The, not the Matthew skipper, Broderick. Not Matthew Broderick. <laughs> the skipper on the Flosten, USS Flosten or whatever. He looks so stressed out. I feel so bad for that guy. In the scene where Bruce Willis is, where they're getting uh, besieged by the Mangalores. Yeah. And, you know, anybody else want to negotiate that scene? He was so good in that. Uh, not Matthew Broderick. He was, <laughs> he looked so nervous and scared and he was just like. I know. It was great. Yeah, it's like it, it's just all of these extra people. I mean, just just really make it what it is. But the person that I mostly want to talk about, and we have not touched on him, is Gary Oldman. Oh God, yes, Jean Baptiste Emmanuel Zorg. Zorg. Yeah, he actually hated this movie. 
like they did an interview with him in 2014 and he was like i can't even bear it which makes me super sad because this is my favorite gary oldman movie (laughs) and this is not his first luke basson movie no it's not he did leon the professional as the villain and then he did fifth element as a favor to him really yeah well luke basson funded one of Gary Oldman's other movies. I can't think of what the name of it is, but he he helped fund that movie. And so Gary Oldman was like, oh, well, okay, you helped me, so I'll help you type thing. Um, but he's just... He, the thing is, is that even if he hated doing this role, he was so freaking good. He was so good. And I, I don't know, it, just the way the character that he brought to it and his whole look and the limp which they never explained i don't know and and the uh the thing on his head which they never explained he's got like a like a piece of of uh plastic on his head that his hair slides through light blue plastic that covers half of his head now he had some henchmen that had full blue plastic things on their head did you you remember that yeah but i didn't really put it together that maybe that's the same thing Maybe it's a, it's like a rank thing, but it's, they're not a military though. Zorg is like a weapons manufacturer yeah. and an antiquities dealer, right? That's what he does. And and I want to talk about this real quick while we're talking about Zorg. The big bad in this movie is uh, basically a, a ball of evil in space <laughs> that can somehow call Zorg on the phone. Yeah, he talks to him on the phone. I just want to know how those two got hooked up. Like, yeah, I was well, thinking about that today. Well, the, the big ball of uh, evil is apparently telekinetic because he could make Zorg's nosebleed through the phone. It wasn't his nose. It was his forehead. That's right. It made his forehead bleed. <laughs> it looked... Just his forehead. Not gonna lie, though. It does look like chocolate syrup. It does look like chocolate... <laughs> you're absolutely... It probably is chocolate syrup. <laughs> yeah. But but he was able to do that. So maybe this thing is just like uh, like a god. It knows everything, can do anything. Yeah, I guess so. It's just... They never explain it. I think that that's better, though, because I, I think if they... I think if they explained how they met, it would have taken away... It would have demystified it, and it would have been less entertaining, I think. Because if we're like, oh, they met in a coffee shop. Now they're friends. Like, that... I don't know. Like, the, having that background just takes away from how evil this thing is, because... We don't actually know anything about it other than it's just ultimate evil and it likes to eat satellites so that it can send out radio waves. And it gives us a, it gives us a big um, a big bad guy, a big plot bad guy without having to, you know, hire another actor. True. And it, and it leaves us plenty of time for Zorg and Corbin Dallas, who never actually meet each other in this movie at all or even know about each other's existence. Right. Yeah. Our protagonist and our antagonist spend the entire movie unaware of each other yes it's rare because most of the time they have to meet there has to be exposition there has to be monologuing there has to be all sorts of things to wear the usual shit yes yeah and they totally moved away from that um which is it's just you know another sign of just how great this movie is that you can not have them meet and it's still a great movie you know? Yeah, and it, and it made sense. There was no reason for him to meet, but it's still weird. You would think that, uh, you know, I don't know if this is something that happens a lot in French cinema. Maybe it's a thing, but in American cinema, hell no. There's oh, got to yeah. be a Hans Gruber. <laughs> you know what I mean? You yeah. have to have that, that Hans Gruber moment with the monologue and, you know, all that. That's, that's an American staple, 
I don't know. Maybe it's not like that. I haven't seen a lot of French movies. I haven't either. But you know, I think for I think for movies, people feel like the the good guy has to have a viable reason for hating the bad guy, and the only way you can do that is if you meet them and you see just how evil they are, and you're just like, you know, if if they're any kind of bad guy, they would have heard it by now. So they would have heard of this bad guy and. You know, they're like, oh, this guy's bad. I've got to stop him because I'm the hero. Ta-da. Yeah, they totally they totally don't do that, and it's very refreshing. Yeah. It's different. Uh, Mila Jovovich was actually, like, she, she'd been doing movies a little while before she did Fifth Element, and then she took a break to do her singing career, which I didn't even know she had one. And so then I think she was picked out of, like, 300 girls. She'd spend like eight hours a day practicing her martial arts and karate and body movements and, and all of that. But another fun fact, um, there are several several scenes where she's like high kicking. She Mila couldn't get her leg to go that high. So they had to use this artificial leg to get to kick up that high. And I was just like, I would have never I mean, the things they do for movies is just incredible to me. Like you would never know that un- until you see or you read an article and you're like oh okay now i'm gonna be looking for it like anytime she does a high kick i'll be like oh that's not her that's a fake leg so mia jovovic uh i remember from dazed and confused which was Uh filmed in my high school really yes interesting um but anyways yeah she was on that movie she was she it was just a tiny part she's the one that sings the song about the aliens when they're at the moon tower Yes. and so she was a singer uh, she still is a singer. She's done a lot of stuff with uh, Tool, with uh, Maynard Keenan. Oh. Uh, I think she sang for Pussifer or something like that. I don't oh, know. okay. I don't know. But I know that they're, they've are they been associated. She's gone on tour with them and stuff okay. like that. I think she was dating Linklater, too. I think she's got a habit of dating her directors. Um, Ooh. Uh, yeah, she was great in Days to Confused for five seconds. But, yeah. But, I mean, I even remember her from that. Uh, when I saw her on the commercials for The Fifth Element, I was like, wow. Uh, you know, good to see her doing something because I kind of knew she was going to be a star. She had, she looked so good in Days to Confuse. She is just beautiful. Those eyes. I mean, she was striking in that movie. Yeah. And uh, and I recognized her immediately, even though I hadn't seen her in like eight years. Yeah. Between those movies, something like that. Well, but the cool thing is, is that her her being in a sci-fi movie launched her to do resident evil yeah i think if she didn't if she hadn't done fifth element i don't think that she would be the face of resident evil Mm -hmm. the movies anyway um but her i mean she's got great acting chops i mean i just as somebody who just kind of came out of nowhere and you know did a few things here and there like she's got some really great acting chops the other thing luke basson and mila they both came up with this language and they would write letters to each other in the language, I mean, it was just hundreds of words. Because, I mean, there's no... It, it's not based on anything. It's just gobbledygook, really, is what it yeah. is. But, I mean, it's it's just... It's one of those things where, um, again, it just shows the creativeness of, of this movie that you can have this kind of unknown woman learn... I mean, learn martial arts and learn this new language and just all of this really cool stuff. And so, I don't know if I could do it. I mean... Uh, I don't know. Like, if it's not based on anything, it seems kind of difficult. No, she's fantastic. She really kind of gave her all in this. She has done some really cool stuff in her career. Um, 
the Resident Evil movies are pretty good, but I'm anxious to see what she does next because, to be honest with you, those Resident Evil movies, they were okay, but she's too good for them. Yeah. It's kind of like uh, Kate Beckinsale in those Underworld movies. I love those oh. movies, but she's way too good for those movies. Man, I could... She should be doing other stuff. Bleh. Sorry, I'm, I'm kind of like... <laughs> You'll quote me on this later, but um, I'm 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 kind of a, a vampire elitist. Oh God! Especially not like uh, not Jesus. like. <laughs> shut up! It it's more it's more along the lines of like what I think is good vampire lore versus what I think is garbage. So do you like the sparkly vampires from oh, Twilight? God, it's your favorite, no. right? God, blah. So you're blah. you like the Bram Stoker. That's more my that's more my, my cup of yeah. tea. And so I, I don't hate the Underworld movies. I just think they're kind of just... They certainly take liberties with the lore. They Oh, well, certainly they do. Yeah. <laughs> certainly I think do. they're good fun, good dumb fun, though. Yeah. Big yeah. dumb fun. And I and they have the amazing Bill Nighy, whom I love. Bill Nighy is, yeah. like, my number one. I mean, he's the best. <laughs> he's the best actor. Yeah. Also, they made him look really scary yeah you know which yeah. is not which is difficult because he, he just looks like a really nice old man and they made him look like creepy as hell so <laughs> yeah uh, what was that movie he was in um where he was a rock star uh, uh I, I keep wanting love to say, actually yeah love actually i fucking <laughs> loved him in love actually that's a great he was, movie he was so good oh yeah that was a that was a perfect movie I have that's one movie that I have no complaints on. Mm, Love yeah. Actually was a perfect film. Oh, um, one of the other things is um, Eric Serra. Eric Serra did the music for this movie. Now he's done a lot of Luc Besson's scores, um, but this one I don't know what it is. The music for this always gets me because it's just so cool. Like you don't yeah. really hear stuff like this because it's got like a, it's very futuristic but it also has like these okay, it's like a, it's like early 90s hip-hop kind of thing yes yeah like the scene where she gets stuck in the auto wash um and he's like he's like drying her off there's like this sultry saxophone playing in the background like kenny g is going to town and all i can think of is like some some 90s or late 80s 90s um like soap opera playing like it's yeah. just it that it just it has it's so different like he has like rastafarian kind of yeah there's some ro- like jamaican music middle eastern themes and the very first uh song that we hear in present day is during the scene where uh Lilu is escaping the facility and mm-hmm. she jumps off the building and there's this really interesting uh like hip-hop track you know yeah uh 90s hip-hop track almost sounds like something you would hear millie vanilli singing over you know uh but it's just so out of place i think in that scene and then at one point she jumps off the building and it just kind of it's this beautiful piano riff yes like yeah it's like it it, it's like it's almost like the guy was watching the movie as he composed the score yeah it's just so bizarre but they, he puts it all together in just a lovely, beautiful way. Like, uh, the music also kind of makes this. Because I think if it was anything like John Williams sounding or, or any of those other people, like, I think he would take you out of it. Because the music makes it less serious. Because that's really yeah. what I think of when I watch this movie is it doesn't take itself too seriously. You're not so sucked into this sci-fi world that they can't break their own rules. But 
Though I would argue that as far as sci-fi goes, this is about as sci-fi as it gets. For for being what it is, and for being as big of a movie as it was, because mm-hmm. this was a big deal. I mean, this this wasn't some sleeper hit. Right. This was designed to be, I mean, it's a $90 million movie. Yeah. So uh, for what it is, um, and for the environment in which it was built, it is way more sci-fi than it has any right to be. Um, you know, it's kind of got all the elements and it pulls it all together really well. I mean, it's, it's a real sci-fi movie. Yeah. Well, and he, you know, uh, Luc Besson kind of made a comment about how, you know, he thought that this, the special effects and and everything that he had back then were kind of primitive. Um, and he would have done a much better job had he made the movie now. And he even kind of hinted at, you know, wanting to do a sequel and it just kind of made me think like what would that even look like using today's special effects and cgi and all of that like how much would be either taken away or added to the movie to have what we have today you know because by 1997 standards the special effects for this movie are really great yes So if we add 2017, 2018, 2019 technology to it, um, I don't know. It's, it's hard for me to sit there and go, well, it would still feel the same as fifth element. Cause I think it would take away from it a little bit. Well, there were a lot of practical effects in this film. They wouldn't have done it that way if it would have been made today. No, it wouldn't have been as good a film. The Mangalores, do you have any information on this? Were they puppets or costumes or were they digital because the way the mangalore's mouths moved was really really good yeah i i I think it was a mixture because i mean just watching it again i mean even just the other night i'm sitting there going man that's if it's anything other than if it's anything under other than a mask like i'll be super surprised right because it doesn't look like cg mm -mm. it looks practical but it's good way better than i would expect puppeteering to be maybe it's animatronic it's possible i mean maybe they maybe they have a mixture of both because i don't know it's just it's super good and that's the that's the thing that i worry about though is if they ever decided that they wanted to do like a sequel to fifth Uh. element or anything like that they would take advantage of the cgi and make all of the characters cgi you know like and I'll, you know, this is a tiny little rant and then we won't talk about it ever again. But, you know, going back and fixing the Star Wars characters to be CGI instead of the puppets that were originally made for them is probably the crappiest thing that he could have done for that franchise. And because it looks like crap, it's not even remotely the same. Having the actual puppets and animatronics is what made those movies. And it's the same for Fifth Element. So if you if you took this movie and you made it in 2017, my guess is that they would be um, they would be tempted to use CGI because it's easier. You don't have to make the costumes. You don't have to have the people. You just have somebody sitting at a computer working on whatever. So, and I think it just it takes away from the realness of it. You're pulled out because you're like, man, that just looks so fake. It looks so terrible. You ever heard the term, uh, the uh, phrase, every frame of painting? Yeah. That applies very heavily to this movie. Just Mm -hmm. every, it it almost reminds me of like Guardians of the Galaxy um, in that every time you could pause the the movie anywhere and it looks like a comic book panel. Any of the movies that I've seen that he's directed, I'm like, wow, that is just so pretty. Well, and look at the scenes um, 
like at the beginning of the movie when Lilu's falling uh, from the building and and falls into Dallas's uh, cab, and you've got uh, all of this cityscape that she's falling through, and it looks great. Yeah, it does. It looks real, mm-hmm. and it's and that's not that's not digital. No, that's all composite shots. Mm-hmm. And today they would make it digital, and it'd look like shit. Yeah, and I'm not trying to bash bash CGI. I think it's a fantastic technology because you have really great movies that have come out with CGI and and they have really taken it to a level where you can do so much more that you couldn't have you you wouldn't have been able to do 20 years ago, even 10 years ago. Um but it does have its limits. Yes. It, there are places where you have to use practical effects or it looks bad. Blood yeah. Uh, that's something that they try to do all the time digitally, and it always looks like shit. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, I don't, you know, it's it's just, it's a constant um, argument in the media cinema world where CGI, no CGI, you know, can we get away with it? Can we not? Like, what, what exactly can we do? And, um, and right now it's practical effects are in vogue again. Yeah. Uh, and the, the film snobs are all about it. They never really went away from it, but like now it's almost a badge of honor if you use practical effects in your movie. People yeah. respect you more for it. Well, because it's it's more difficult. You yes. have to you you have to. It's not just a computer program. You have to actually sit there and think about. Okay, so how are we going to make this look real? And where do we where do we put in CGI? Where do we not? Like how do we like all of that? To me, is you know, being a somewhat of a film snob, I think I would I would stay away from CGI as much as I could until I was like, okay, we have to do CGI for this because it's just impossible not to. Well, I would think doing practical effects is more fun. Right. Yeah, exactly. The The hard work that goes into it and, and all of that stuff. So let me ask you, there's one scene, and this is one of those things that stuck out with me. There was a, a spaceship that was, I believe it was a ship that left Earth going towards, uh, maybe it was the Flostin uh, cruise ship. Yeah. But they showed it ascending into space, and it was... It was like a composite shot, and you could see the little, you could see a little bit of space around the ship where it looked like the colors didn't quite match up yeah. when they chromed it out, and uh, and it looked just like uh, Star Wars, like A New Hope. You know, yeah. uh, some of the some of the early scenes at the beginning of that movie look the same way, and they've also got in the same shot these two uh, giant ships that look like the Imperial Star Destroyers from the first movie? Yes. Is that shot an homage to A New Hope? Um Like did they put that shitty compositing in there on purpose to make it look (laughs) like a New Hope? Just to to throw a nod that way? I think they did. I well, I actually did not think about that until just now. Like I I just You know the shot I'm talking about. Yeah. 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 I didn't even I didn't even think about it until just now, but I I mean 
I why not? I think they did. <laughs> I think they certainly had the technology to get that that uh, chroma issue out of there. Yeah, and they didn't miss it. If you're gonna do a space movie, why not? Why not do an homage? It's it just seems I think it it's just great. seems right. And of course, when right. this I believe when this movie came out was right around the time George Lucas released the uh, CG remasters of those movies. So maybe it was even mm, a protest. Maybe. I don't know. I'll have to go back and actually look at that and like pause the frame and just see. You can't miss it. <laughs> you, you don't have to pause it to see it. It's pretty glaring. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'll definitely, I'll definitely have to go back and look at that. Cause that's just, that's funny. If it is, it's, it's hilarious. I, I think it might be a tip of the hat. Um, we didn't talk about, uh, the diva Plava Laguna. We mentioned her. She has a very compelling, uh, scene in this movie. People have tried to recreate that song, like them, like actually singing it themselves. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about that today. Do you know who sang the song? Inva Mula. She's an Albanian opera lyric soprano. And basically, this is this is her claim to fame. <laughs> it makes me laugh because all these people gather to watch this diva and she only sings one song. I know, right? <laughs> right? It's true. Like, I don't know. Maybe she was going to sing more, but she got shot, of course. <laughs> I guess so. I don't, but everybody was like standing up and clapping and then nothing else was going on for a second. And then she gets shot. And you're like, oh, what, that was it? One song? Okay. Um, yeah. I mean, it was pretty impressive. But yeah, Luc Besson's wife was, she did the um, the lip syncing. She was the alien. She did all the dance, the cool dance moves yeah. that she did. Which are terrible, by the way. <laughs> I'm going to talk about that, but you go ahead. <laughs> Um, and so she, she did all of that, but then I guess they had the, the opera singer actually, they'd put her in later on during post, but, um, but yeah, no, I don't know because the, the part where she, um, she does kind of the riff, you know, when Lilu does her fingers, the, mm-hmm. I'm not going to do they, it. When they, when they sink it to the fight scene, right. which is awesome. Yeah. I, I can't tell if somebody's voice could actually do that or if they did it in editing to where it. It sounded like that. Like, I, I don't actually Where know. Where she's kind of singing two notes at the same time. Yeah. 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 I, I don't actually know. It, I doubt it was real. It bugs me as a singer because I want to be like, how could you do that with your voice? And then the more I listen to it, the more I'm like, oh, that, that sounds like it was edited. It yeah. couldn't be real, could it? I doubt it. Hey, maybe if somebody listens to the shit show here. They'll, uh, they can, they can tell us we're fucking idiots for not knowing <laughs> You're this. You're wrong. She could, do, she could have sang that and sang it all the time like that. You know, I, I believe it was Abraham Lincoln that said, if you want to get the right answer to a question, just give the wrong answer on the internet. <laughs> Pretty sure that was Lincoln. Okay. So, so I have a confession to make. I can't watch that scene. Why? Because it makes me cringe to death. The like her the dance singing? moves. Oh, when she starts doing the thing she does with the oh god, oh, it just <laughs> I, I'm doing it right now. I feel physically flush and just I. It's just something about it. It it gets to me in a way where I just can't look at it. It's just so bad. Is it? It kind of kills me. Is it her blue vinyl head dog? <laughs> because it just kind of wiggles. Yeah. It might be that. It could it could be the the weird dreadlock things. It and the look on her face is so weird when I she's know. doing it. It's just the whole thing for me just like it it almost hurts to watch. Maybe if she had eyebrows it wouldn't be so weird. Maybe that's it. 
I mean, I love the I love the scene. I love the song. I love the way they integrated it with the fight scene. I think that's great. But man, I can't watch her dance. I don't know. I'm... Because I think there was something wrong with the suit where like if she moved too much, maybe it would fall apart. Well, you could see because when she moved, when she did the hip thrusting or whatever, yeah. uh. <laughs> you, could see, you could see whatever was going on underneath the, the suit. Yes. Yeah. And like other clothes or wires or whatever. And it just like, it weirded me out too. So I have to like focus on everything else. Like I just have to focus on her face and the song because it makes me excited. Like when they all get hushed and she comes out and starts to sing, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is such a cool scene. And I don't know. I, I, I just have an opposite reaction. I just, I mean, I, I've, I've had moments where, you know, I'm actually cringing during a movie and I, I can't watch those scenes, but that's, that's not one of them. Really? Yeah. It is. It is the only one for me. It just skeeves me out to watch just that one part. There's like five seconds of that whole thing that it just skeeved me out. It's, the, it's the vinyl headdress, man. I, maybe it's just the uncanniness of it all. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. But um, there are some things, though, that that don't make – I don't know if it's the edit, Like, the editing, for the most part, is really great. The yes. way that they edit stuff together, especially when there's two scenes happening at once. Like, when Lilu's describing where the stones are and Zorg is getting the case from the Mandalores or whatever they're called. And, and it goes split screen. Right, because he says, stolen, and – he goes, or no, she says it's empty, and he goes, empty. Uh, ha, ha. No, she laughs. Yeah. She laughs. <laughs> yeah. That was great. Yes. Perfect. But there are some things that, like, don't really make sense. Like, okay, so you know the part where they go to grab the guy in Corbin Dallas's apartment? Where mm-hmm. he's like, smoke you! And the the Mandalores, like, come in where their, their boss is, and he's sitting on the ground, and he's bloody, and he's got a like a blanket and like half of his ear is coming off why is he like that i i don't know i don't know there's there's no reason for it is there i'm sitting there going wait was there a fight that i missed and the only thing i can think of is when they um when they press the red button mm-hmm. on the on the gun and they all explode they blew up. that's the but nobody else is hurt it's just that leader guy that is I guess Aknot is his, is his name. Yeah. There's nobody else that's hurt. It's just him. And I'm like, what happened, man? Your ear is coming off. <laughs> so do we know if that is the same um, Mangalore that was played by Tricky in the airport? In the spaceport? Tricky. Tricky. You know, the, the rapper. The British rapper Tricky. He was the Mangalore, the black guy. Oh, oh, yes. He wasn't a Mangalore. He was Zorg's, like, assistant. Oh, okay, okay. They did have a Mangalore that did that could that shapeshift to space, but, but it, it wasn't, wasn't that him. guy. Okay. I didn't know he was so, a rapper. Yeah, he's a rapper. His name's <laughs> Tricky. He's been around for a long time. He's very good. Yeah, no, it's, um, yeah, that that guy was great, too. Uh, the, the part where he's the roach, and he gets smacked, and he's like, ugh. <laughs> it always cracks me up, because I'm just like, he's just in a dark room somewhere. He attached a, a satellite thing to a roach. Right. Yeah. <laughs> How you manage that, I don't know. But he did it, and then he gets smashed by the president's shoe, and it's so great because well, his headphones just go. And, and that's another example of shitty technology. In the year 2257, we've got 
Uh, we've got shitty robots. We've got shitty remote controlled bugs. And we've got <laughs> cigarettes that are 80% filter and about 20% actual tobacco. It's it's like uh, technology has gone way wrong. It is so... Those cigarettes bugged the crap out of me. I always wanted to be like, turn it over. Flip it, flip I thought it they, around. I kind of thought they were great. I mean, when have you ever seen that before? I mean, Nowhere. I, I think it very well illustrates a future gone wrong. Yeah. You got shitty cigarettes that are 20% fucking tobacco. <laughs> is this movie not a... a uh, uh, kind of shitting on capitalism. It kind of is. It totally a little is. Bit. Especially with the whole, like, the guy comes in and he's like, you know, the economy's heating up. I thought maybe we could fire 5,000. And the guy and Zorg's like, fire sure. 1 million. Yeah. And you're like, holy yeah. shit. Like, you could just fi- fire a million people. No big deal. Zorg is, is very much a representation of a capitalist, you know. I mean, obviously. He plays a character that's a capitalist, but... Well, they have a whole conversation with the priest, with Ian Holmes' character, about yeah. how... All these machines have a function, and everybody and their family can eat, and they're but it ain't kids. gonna it ain't gonna knock that cherry out of your throat. Exactly, right? like there's a whole subtopic in this movie about capitalism well, and the economy and all of that. Well, and when you think about the time that it came out, um, the internet was still not quite in every home yet, mm-hmm. um, and technology was changing. It was starting to make things a little bit easier, but it wasn't very good yet. Yeah. So everything kind of sucked. Like we had really <laughs> shitty cell phones back then. Uh, I'm a little bit older than you, but I don't know if you remember the Palm Pilots. Oh, yeah, a little bit. That little was bit, pretty yeah. much the shit back then. The fucking Palm Pilots. And they are they are a really good example of something that is designed to make your life easier. Just not doing it at all. <laughs> Just failing in every respect. Yeah. And so maybe it's a little bit of social commentary. I mean, it's obviously yeah. social commentary, but maybe it's a little more timely than, than you you know. Maybe it's not necessarily reflecting a shitty future, but a shitty present. Yeah. I mean, that's that would that would make more sense because obviously, you know, they they can only they can only talk about or they can only show what they know, which is we're living in a time of technological advancement, but not quite there yet. But I, I feel I feel like maybe in this world, uh, capitalism has made technology into uh, something that is no longer convenient. Yeah. Like innovation has has made it so that you just got to churn out the next fucking product, whether it's good or bad for society. It doesn't matter. Just get it out there. Yeah, fuck yeah. Our new cigarettes have 80% more filter. Woo! Right? Although the stuff in Corbin Dallas's apartment is like like kind of convenient. Yeah. Well, I want a bed that makes itself and I want a shower that automatically turns on and, and can... He like, his refrigerator goes down into the floor yes. and his shower is on top of it. Yeah. like the- It's modular. And, and there's a lot of references to like modular living when they're in the, uh, on the, the Floston Express, uh, they're in these tiny, they're sleeping in these tiny little compartments and there's a button that they can push that puts you to sleep instantly. Sleep regulator. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, although that would be super convenient because oh, I do horrible it? with flights. The other thing that doesn't make sense, and maybe I missed this along the way, but there's a part where they're taking off and Ruby Rod is making out with that chick and like there's a whole bunch of stuff going on. And so at one point you see these two legs come out from the curtains. They look like the stewardesses or the, the flight attendant's legs, 
but they're so far apart and they like raise up when they take off like they come down before they before they go and then they raise them up as they take off and i'm sitting there going they're super far apart like they're not like together and they're not like splayed out like she's you know in the middle of something they're just like robot legs like they go up very stiff and they come down yes. very stiff. Yeah, they totally do. You're right, though. It was obviously somebody with a pair of mannequin legs that was, <laughs> you know, bringing them up and down. There was just no explanation, they though. They probably really did it because they wanted it to match the sound of the landing gear. So they wanted it to kind of be so. a little axial, like if it was the landing gear on the, on the plane. Because that was kind of what they were trying to do was blend that motion in with the sound of the landing gear on the plane going yeah i guess so i just it was another one of those things where i was like i don't i don't know what's happening i there. get it i think it's weird too but i think i get the vision yeah i don't, I don't know <laughs> and that whole so small children if you're listening you should probably not fuck leave. off kids <laughs> yeah yeah pretty much so the scene <laughs> where he is going to town on that flight attendant i remember watching it as a young adult and going like i'm just sitting there the physicality of how they're doing stuff is so funny to me because she's just standing up straight and he keeps like disappearing and i like as a grown adult who has had children i'm just sitting there going what is he doing like it's just it's it's just like not that i want to like see but it's just one of those things where i'm just like as a young adult, very uncomfortable because I know he's doing something, but I don't know exactly what. And then, like, it just gets more and more intense. And, like, just the whole thing is just so bizarre to me. Like, it's just, like, I don't I don't know. The whole point, I think, of that entire section of the movie, that whole sequence, it was supposed to be a little overwhelming. Because there was a whole lot of confusion going on and then resolution. So the whole thing was it was it was a build up to a yeah. climax. It was a it was a mini climax. And, you know, not to not to be too on the nose here, but <laughs> I mean I think that they were pretty on the nose with it, weren't That's they? That's true. That's they, true. They gave you the metaphor, and then they just straight up gave you the. Uh, well, and that's that's not that's something that I didn't really think about. Like, I guess because I've just watched it so many times, I don't think about like the hills and the valleys of the movie. And this is this is one of those things where it's kind of a emotional balance. Like you're you're balancing out for a second. You're like, oh, okay, there's no action going on. It's kind of because they're ramping up for the next last half of the movie to be this explosions and gunfire yes. and. Oh my God, the world's about to end. Like you don't really, it's funny to go back and look at these as somebody who has watched so many movies and who has studied theater and film and things like that. And just to kind of see all like again, the hills and valleys that these movies provide. And you're just like, oh, okay. I never noticed that before, but, but yeah, that's a good thing. It's, it's, I never thought of it that way before about it being a, a build up to a resolution and then it being like a physical and actual climax right. happening at the same right. time. I think it was good. I like that sequence a lot. That's one of my favorite parts of the film. Ruby Rod, just anytime Ruby Rod is on the screen, it's, it's wonderful. That was a performance that I did not expect. And another performance that I did not expect was Ian Holm. Mm, Ian Holm yes. in this movie really, really impressed me. He was so good. If I had to say, uh, you know, as far as acting chops, Ian Holmes had the best chops of anyone in the whole movie. He was he so did amazing. Good. Of course, 
for those of you who don't know, Ian Holmes played um, Father Vito Cornelius in the movie, and he was also Bilbo Baggins in all of the Peter Jackson Bilbo. Lord of the Rings. See, what's funny though is I, I think I actually saw. Uh, fellowship of the ring before i saw fifth element wow so i immediately i've i always associate him with bilbo always yeah so it's just so funny to me because when i saw him in fifth element i was like oh my god it's bilbo see it was the exact opposite <laughs> for me when it's... i saw when i first saw lord of the rings i was like ah it's Vito cornelius <laughs> yeah yeah, no, he's great. He's great. He's just so, again, another character that is just so stressed out. And and Ian Holmes' assistant, David, like, he is scaring that child. Like, he's going to, like, pee his pants at one point because he's always being surprised. That's- Anytime that Vito Cornelius or anybody would come up behind him or surprise him, he's, like, jumping three feet yeah. in the air. He's just like, oh, my An- God. Another fantastic <gasps> character. I know. He's just so, he's so great. And he's just, like, tripping. He's this bumbling character that you know nothing about. Heart of he- gold. Yeah. 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 The other thing that always, speaking of heart of gold, it all any time that Lilu is disrobing, is it disrobing? Sure. Okay. (laughs) And she's just like taking off her clothes. Like, I think it's funny that these, I mean, the priest I can understand, but like Corbin Dallas turns around. Yeah. And it just, it shows so much of his character. Like he's not just some cigarette smoking ex-military douchebag. Like he's actually a nice guy that tries to do nice things for other people, even though he's constantly getting screwed. And I just, I love that he just had the, the wherewithal to turn around and he's not just ogling this girl and half naked. Like, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's a great character. Um, it's just a great character development or great character adage that he put in there. Well, this is the kind of guy who's got a photo of his boss in his apartment. Right. Uh, and, and he wants to meet the one perfect woman. Like, right. Well, and he's, he's also the way he treats her in the, uh, in the beginning of the movie is is really sweet anyways yeah. uh you know he does go in for that unconsensual sleepy kiss <laughs> you know but uh, uh she kind of set him straight on that pretty quick didn't right she? the one uh nude scene in this movie mm-hmm. is about the most tastefully done nude scene i've ever seen yes it is it's almost pg-13 nudity like uh you know i always kind of feel bad for uh for kate winslet because She's done a nude scene in a movie and it's still got a PG-13 rating. She was basically full frontal and yes. she got a PG-13 rating. That's got to be a bit insulting. I know. And I mean, she's just all in her glory. Was this a PG-13 movie? Uh-huh. Oh, shit. Yeah. So there's two two nude scenes that I've ever seen in a PG-13 movie and that's this and Titanic. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's weird. Yeah. yeah. I just, I, I appreciate the... Because people, the way that romance is portrayed nowadays is is either just really super fast or it's really creepy. Like yeah. they they have these advances on these girls and you're just like, whoa, whoa, whoa why, why is that happening? But he, it's, just, it's kind of a slow burn. You know, he cares about her, but he knows that she can hold her own. And it's only till until the very last five seconds of the movie is there any like, sexual contact between them they don't even like really kiss until the end of the movie which is again very rare you don't really see that with a protagonist and their love interest you know 
well, usually it's like middle of the movie they're you know screwing each other's brains out but but for this one it was just she was just so pure and he recognized that in her and he didn't take advantage of it like he just was a nice guy an all-around good guy and you know i think it it probably all kind of fits in with the theme of the movie because the fifth element was love you yeah. know and uh and so if they kind of went straight in for that, then they probably wouldn't really be able to use that whole love as the fifth element thing. In right, the end, right. Because you, you could totally be like, but you just. But like, y'all were doing you, it like halfway yeah. through the movie. Why is this a surprise <laughs> now? Right. Yeah. I just, I don't know. There's just so many perfect things about this movie. It's, it's like I said, this movie was lightning in a bottle. Mm, yeah. You know, I mean, like if you tried to set out and copy this, it wouldn't work. It wouldn't come off genuine. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know. I kind of feel like when this movie was being planned, it probably didn't turn out a whole lot like it was planned, but it just yeah. worked out great. I mean, you know, you think about it, it, the think about the set pieces, the costumes. Oh my God. How there much were, do you think they spent on wardrobe? There was 900 costume pieces. Uh, Jean-Paul Gaultier mm -hmm. designed every piece. He did Ma Madonna's uh, breast cones. Or That's right. That's booby right. Cones. That's right. <laughs> Which was fucking awful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But the I mean, yeah, 900 costume pieces for these characters. I mean, for everyone, not just the main characters, but for extras. And at this point, Jean-Paul Gaultier was a very sought after designer. Yes, that he was. That had to be expensive. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. But $90 million. I mean, come on. If you're going to have that much of a budget, you might as well go all the way and have one of the best, most sought after costumers be on your movie. Yeah. I just know that he was highly sought after and, and I mean, he very detail oriented and, and just very, you know, anal about how everybody looked. And, um, again, it just cracks me up that Prince thought that the costumes were too effeminate. That's to insane to me. I know. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. And, and the more that we've been talking about this, the more that I, cause for a little while I thought, man, it'd be super cool if they did a sequel, if they had like, you know, Lilu and Corbin had like this daughter and she's like a hybrid thing. Like I was like, man, that'd be super cool. But the more that I talk about it, the more I'm like, I just don't know. I think it would be be subpar. We can just pretend that's what Lucy was. I never thought about that. Oh my gosh. I like that. I, I like that a lot. My my final thought would be um, just just going back to the fact that he didn't take himself so seriously. My One of my all-time favorite scenes is at the end when they've saved the world and they stopped the giant flaming rock from hitting Earth. And David goes, yeah! And then we have Ruby Rod go, what you screaming for? <laughs> Set up a bomb or something? Like, that just... In encapsulates the idea that he just did not take himself so seriously because he could have made this super serious no laughing just you know here's a movie with sci-fi and special effects like it he could have very easily done it that way he did it though he put a humor element into it that really makes it like it, it just gives it another fucking great level because you have you have the the acting you've got the costumes you've got the special effects you've got all of this stuff but just that one extra level of humor just makes it so perfect so i mean 
you see so many movies that are done not necessarily wrong but just done too serious to the point where you just walk out and you're just like depressed with your life because there was nothing happy about it that's what I love so much about the Marvel movies is that they don't take themselves so seriously that they can't have a joke in there or two jokes or five jokes or an ongoing joke you know um so I I just I really appreciate that about this movie is that it just keeps you laughing and it keeps you on the edge of your seat and you just again it's just such a pretty movie that you're just like hooked even with just that so that's my final thought that's my final thought too i mean you pretty much said everything that i feel about this movie so i'll just wrap it up with uh my favorite quote from the movie Mm -hmm. i am a meat popsicle (laughs) i mean come on what a line somebody did somebody write that was that ad-libbed i don't know that was so awkward and and in a good way i think that that line itself kind of uh conveys the attitude of the whole film you know he's yeah. just saying some crazy shit and just they random crazy him. shit they just move on right well i mean hello like I, he's obviously not a meat popsicle but they're like okay, okay. um well i think un- unless we decide to do something different but i think next week we're gonna do ravenous cool yeah, yeah. well that's all we have for this episode so uh i want to thank you for listening Thanks to our two listeners. We really appreciate you. You're great. Yeah. We love you. Y'all are wonderful. Please uh, give us a a five-star rating. Please. We're begging you. We're begging you you right now. I make really great cookies. That's not a metaphor for anything. I'm serious. I make really great cookies. Why didn't you bring cookies? I forgot, man. Fuck. (laughs) Thanks for listening, everybody. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Gumstafar Cinema. Be sure to tell your friends. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. This has been Rogue Media Network Podcast.